Well, good morning again, and welcome again to another podcast, Down to Earth, but Heavenly Minded. And I'm your host, Irv Risch. Well, I'm having a few technical difficulties today, but it's not with the recording or my computer or anything like that. It's with my ears. <laughs> Actually, what happened yesterday is we had a power outage. And uh, it was the Lord's Day, and we were at the chapel worshiping. And we had a worship in the dark, or semi-dark. But we had the Lord's light, and that's all we needed. Uh, and after uh, the worship, the teaching ministry, we had a panel discussion on the attributes of God. Of course, with no power, I couldn't record it. So, as I was listening to the panel discussion, after the first question, lo and behold, the lights came on. Let there be light, and there was light. So, after uh, the lights came on, I just took my phone, and I tried to hold it, and I, I recorded it, and then I tried to edit the, the volume, vol not the volume, but the sound, uh, and try to clean it up somewhat, and I did the best I could, and I posted it. But this morning, uh, I went to put my hearing aids in, and uh, they weren't charged, and I come to realize that my uh, charger for my hearing aids uh, quit working. I don't know if it was because of a surge in the power uh, yesterday when the power went out, but I had it plugged into a, a, a surge protector, and uh, I'm not sure what happened, but I had to get online and send a message so I could try to get a uh, a new charger for my hearing aids. But I can hear a little bit uh, with the with the earphones. Uh, I'm deaf in one ear, but the other ear is uh, about fifty percent. So I'm pretty close, and uh, a lot of this was military-related, and uh, I get all my stuff through the VA. Well, that's enough rambling on. Let us uh, kind of hit our uh, our podcast today, and we're in uh, the Gospel of John, Chapter 6, uh, in that teaching by Keith Gorgaz. And with that said, I'm just going to uh, kind of jump in here and uh, set up for our our lesson. Okay, hang in there. I'll be right back. John 6. A layman looks at John's Gospel. This is one of the most profound chapters in all the Bible and is worth taking our time going through. It is packed to the brim with truth. 5,000 men fed. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. They were attracted, not by his majestic person, nor by his amazing teachings, but by his ability to perform signs and wonders. God gives these signs to confirm the truth and to verify the person, not as an end-all. 
the Lord was in the business of reaching and caring for those who the Father had given him. He wasn't looking to build his ratings or develop a large following. Now the Lord does something we can all learn from, he habitually removed himself from the masses to refresh himself in the presence of God and his people. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us that we are seated together with Christ in heavenly places. Sometimes we hear Christians say, erroneously, I believe, that the primary object of the church is to carry out the great commission of sharing the gospel to this lost world. I believe that our primary mission is to worship and commune with the Lord. Spiritual service flows from that place of worship. Martha was cumbered about with much service, but Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him. Here we see the Lord enjoying the company of his own, sitting and chatting. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. This should make it clear that the previous feast mentioned was not the Passover. So Jesus, after raising his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Crowd. Now the lesson was for Philip, as the Lord often gives us the test and then the lesson. This is all part of the discipleship program the Lord administers to all of us. But he was saying this only to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. The Lord wants us all continually look to him for a reason behind each and every story. Nothing takes him by surprise or catches him off guard. This isn't so much about the miracle of feeding the multitude with bread but about what he is preparing them for his teaching that he is that bread that comes down from heaven, the only thing that can truly satisfy the spiritual hunger that gnaws in the human heart. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them, for each to receive just a little. Philip doesn't get it at all yet. He is thinking only in terms of earthly food and money. Andrew displays a little more spiritual maturity. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, asterisk said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Andrew doesn't know how the Lord will do it, but he seems to have a sense that the Lord can work with this small amount of food. Jesus said, Have the people reclined to eat. Here the Lord's graciousness shines brightly. He will not only feed the multitude, but he wants them to be comfortable and relaxed. Now there was plenty of grass in the place. So the men reclined, about five thousand in number. Jehovah had promised to shepherd his people to green pastures. Here the good shepherd shows such tender care. He made them to lie down in green pastures. Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, Christians are known for their giving thanks for their food. Here is our Lord, the giver of all good, laying the foundation of a good habit for all us. Paul tells us, regarding food, it is sanctified by the giving of thanks. He distributed them to those who were reclining, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. The Lord did not restrict their hunger or their enjoyment of the food he provided. They ate till they were full. And when they had eaten their fill, he asterisk said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. When the Lord gathers his people together to feed them, not only is there enough for all attendance, but there are baskets of leftovers to be brought back to those who could not attend. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. From just five barley loaves and two small fishes, 
there remain twelve baskets of the fragments. I take it that the number twelve signifies enough left over for the whole house of Israel. The second time, the Lord fed the multitude, there were seven baskets of fragments remaining. I take from these two totals that when the Lord spoke on earth, there was sufficient amount left over for the sustenance of the house of Israel and for the church. Therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. This one act confirmed that the Lord Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke of so many years before. The crowds were so impressed with what Jesus did and said. The Lord knew their hearts and recognized that it was only that they saw him as a meal ticket and would have crowned him king to keep the meals coming. Christians go out as missionaries and do good work. They provide medical assistance, dig wells, and feed the hungry. Everyone wants a piece of the action, yet the Lord was looking for truth. Jesus walks on the water. So Jesus, aware that they intended to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself, alone. The Lord Jesus wanted nothing, nor would he receive anything before the Father's time. Human emotions are not in sync with God's mind or time, and so the Lord knew that they would attempt to crown him king because he had fed the multitude. And so, knowing what was going on in their minds, he withdrew a certain distance from all the crowds, up on the mountain and alone with God his Father. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Perhaps the disciples did not feel their need for the Lord. They were content to go on without him. Can that possibly happen to us? Enjoying the unity of each other's presence, we may feel self-sufficient. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. In addition, the sea began getting rough because a strong wind was blowing. A pleasant evening sail across the lake, chatting, singing, trading a fishing story or two, and even rehearsing the Lord's miracle of the day might be ever so sublime. Now the darkness falls, and the winds howl. The waves are growing. We can well imagine their surprise and fear as they pitched and rolled on the breakers in the darkness, only to see a form appear, walking on the boiling surface. And there in the darkness came his gentle words, It is I. Be not afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. I recently read that the phrase fear not appears 365 times in the Bible, enough for a fresh one each day of the year. So they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. His presence made all the difference in the world for them. The Lord had again confirmed his divinity to his disciples. Not only were the wind and waves under his command, but space and time fell at his feet. In the morning, the masses looked for him and his disciples, but they were not to be found. They knew that the Lord had not boarded with his followers. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had departed alone. It all seemed beyond their comprehension. The crowd of boats began to regroup around the place where the Lord had fed the multitude the previous day. Other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowds saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, looking for Jesus. The Lord had begun the work in the hearts by feeding them. That worked to get their attention, but it did nothing to address the hunger in their hearts.
And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? The Lord had created a curious tension in their minds. They were aware that something beyond their comprehension was going on. The Lord had set the situation up to enable him to teach some wonderful truths. Words to the People Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. The Lord knew their hearts. They had gone to a lot of effort into getting a free lunch. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. The dialogue is fast-paced and to the point. The Lord tells them of food that lasts to eternal life, which he, the one sealed by the Father, will give them. Therefore they said to him, What are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? There is a desire here to understand what the Lord was teaching them. They were looking to him for direction. They ask what work they were to do to earn God's approval and favor. That is the natural reaction of the human heart. What work can I do to acquire eternal life? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Of course, there is no work that a person could do. The work is God's work, he works in the heart to give faith, believing in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then are you doing as a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work are you performing? Unable to grasp the truth in its simplicity, they demand a sign to believe in him. The arrogance of unbelief is on display here. They had already seen him do things that no man had ever done. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They challenged the Lord to show himself equal with Moses, who they credit with giving Israel manna, the bread of heaven, for forty years in the desert. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Moses was just the agent who God used to bestow his goodness on them. Moses didn't make the manna or bring it down each morning for them, God did. Now the Lord tells them that he is the true bread from heaven, given by the Father. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The manna was given for forty years, and it sustained them, but in the end, all who ate it died. The Lord tells them that the bread he will give them eternal life. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. What volumes are spoken in this one sentence? The ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction of all that the soul of man needs or desires are found in the Christ of God. All the hunger and thirst are met in him. But I said to you that you have indeed seen me, and yet you do not believe. Here he stood before them, his life an open book, nothing held back or reserved. And yet they did not believe on him, such as the bondage into which the human heart and will has been sold. But that is not the end of the matter. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. Those who believe and are saved are a gift from the Father to the Son. This began in the heart of God, and they will come to Christ. Not they should come or they might come, but they will come. The Lord adds, lest any claim that they will be rejected because they were not on the list of those given to the Son, that anyone who comes to Him, 
he will and wise cast out. The Lord confronts the false teachings of both the Calvinist and the Arminian in this one sentence. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. By itself, this is a grand statement of the Lord's purpose in coming to earth is a declaration of his dependent obedience at every moment his earthly pathway, but taken in its context, it secures our eternal destiny. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything that he has given me I will lose nothing but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. These words are so clear and deliberate. The Lord will not lose one of the sheep his Father gave him. He might have to chase us down and pull us out of places we should have never been, but he will never let us go or lose one of us. Praise his name. We read in chapter 1 that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. We see this happening again and again in the ensuing chapters. It wasn't all the Jews that rejected him, but the officials, the leaders who should have led the nation in accepting or receiving him, who missed the mark. Is this not the case today in Christendom? Those who have asserted themselves in leadership positions seem the blindest to the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. Words to the Jews So then the Jews were complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Despite the works that he'd done and all he'd said, they found it impossible to believe that this man, the son of a carpenter, could claim to have come from heaven. The natural mind cannot enter into the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolish to them. And they were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? The Lord knew their hearts and heard their murmuring, and he rebukes them, not by satisfying their intellects, but by revealing more truth that can only be accepted by faith. Jesus answered and said to them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Lord is clearly stating the incapability of the natural man to come to Christ for salvation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the Father who draws the soul, and the Son who keeps him. He is an all-the-way home Savior. His promise is that he will rise again from among the dead all who have believed on him. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here he confronts them with the words of the prophets. The promise that all Israel would be taught of God was well known to the Jews. If one were indeed taught of God, he would come to the Son. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. The Lord uses this occasion to again stress his relationship with the Father, and present belief in him as the means and proof of eternal life. Again, the Lord makes the declarative statement that he is the bread of life. Bread is an essential part of the diet in almost every culture in the world. We read in the 104 Psalm that with bread, he strengthens the heart of man. The Lord contrasts himself as the bread of life with the manna that came down from heaven and fed the children of Israel during their 40-year trek through the wilderness. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Although the manna strengthened them and was sustenance for them for forty years, it didn't impart unending life to the eater. 
those who partook of it all eventually died. The Lord Jesus presented himself as the bread of a different order. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. He came down out of heaven to bring eternal life to a dead world. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, if anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever, and the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. Naturally, these words sounded strange to the hearers. Was the Lord suggesting cannibalism? Or something merely symbolic? I think we can dismiss cannibalism out of hand, but to limit the Lord's words to something merely symbolic comes short of a full understanding. We are all familiar with the saying, we are what we eat. This is true in both the physical and the spiritual realms. To feed on Christ, to eat his flesh, and drink his blood is to appropriate him for ourselves and consume him, taking him in and making him part of us. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The best the great legal minds can do is argue over these things, as they cannot understand them. God has hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them by his Spirit unto babes. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Undeterred by their arguments, the Lord builds on what he's already said. Unless we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we have no life in ourselves. Some equate this with the Lord's Supper, and others see no relationship between His Supper and our text here. I think a close examination of 1 Cor 10 will lead us to proper thoughts on the matter. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is to totally take him in and enjoy him, and in doing so, we remain linked to him. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The word communion there means a union based on a common life source. The same word is used for the bread that we break, it is the communion of the body of Christ. An intellectual understanding of the life and death of Christ is not enough to save your soul and make you a partaker of divine life. We must consume him, making him part of the very fabric of our being. A husband and wife become one together through making love. If a couple were to be satisfied with consummating their marriage and then remaining apart from then on, their joy would not be sustainable. It would be a very strange situation. The marriage bonds are built over years of physical, emotional, and spiritual union. The more we feed on the Lord Jesus, the closer we become to Him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, the one who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, the one who eats this bread will live forever. Christ is the mediator who takes the life derived from his Father and shares it with us. This life is heavenly in origin and eternal and divine in character. It is a perpetual union. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. The Lord said these things in public. Many who were following him found them offensive and hard to listen to. Impressed by his works and looking for the Messiah, many had not personally eaten his flesh nor drunk his blood. So then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This statement is very unpleasant, who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, aware that his disciples were complaining about this, said to them, Is this offensive to you? I take it that the dissension including member of the twelve. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Lord intimates that they will see him return to heaven. They weren't ready for that, but he was telling them that he would one day be caught up in glory, before their own eyes. The cross in his death and resurrection remained to be accomplished, but he already was speaking of their blessings. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh provides no benefit, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Here is the key to the whole matter, the Holy Spirit, who was not yet given, would give life and bring understanding. The flesh can offer nothing to the conversation because these words are only understood in the realm of the Spirit, and they are wonderful words of life. When I was a little child of two or three years old, my father told me about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying for me. I believed him the same way I believed him that a truck is a truck or that an elephant has a long memory. I studied the Bible in books about the Bible and tried to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord. Would it surprise you to know that every night until I was 24 years old, I concluded my prayers with, and Lord, if I'm not saved, please save me? As I got into my teenage years and saw my parents' feet of clay, I began to doubt everything they taught me and at least outwardly rejected Christianity. I rejected the God of the Bible and invented my own religion composed of strands of all kinds of foolishness, elements of Eastern mysticism, and Native American drug-induced experiences. At the age of 23, I was brought to my knees before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that He was God, and all that the Bible said about Him was the truth. Satan kept telling me that I had gone too far into sin and that I never could be saved. On Thanksgiving weekend in 1982, driving a tour bus from Boston to New Jersey in the middle of the night, as I came past the exit sign for Sandy Hook, Connecticut on Interstate 84, I saw in front of me the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross being punished for my sins. I heard the voice of Almighty God declare to my trembling soul, He is bearing your sin and judgment. I began to cry and praise the Lord, lifting my hands and shouting, Hallelujah, praise you Jesus, thank you, Lord. I'm sure the passengers on the bus thought I had lost my mind. That was 40 years ago, and I've never again doubted my salvation because I know that it doesn't rest in me but in his finished work, and I long for the moment when I see his face and fall into his embrace. But there are some of you who do not believe. The Lord is not speaking of some transient intellectual belief of stated facts but the real abiding belief on him. When I was little, my belief about Jesus was rooted in my faith in my Father, not personally in the Lord Himself. The Lord knew that there were many who did not believe on Him from the heart. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason, I have told you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. The Lord knew all things and all the hearts. He knew Judas would betray Him and he knew that Peter would deny him, but he also knew that Peter would repent and be converted, while Judas would hang himself and die in his sins. He knew the total depravity of the human heart, and he knew the irresistible grace of God. Peter's Confession of Faith As a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. The Lord's words were blunt and tested the reality of those following him. Many left off and would no longer walk with him. Now the Lord turned to the twelve and asked them if they also wished to leave. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to leave also, do you? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Even knowing that one day Peter would deny knowing him, these words must have been precious to the Lord. Not to what, but to whom? It was Jesus himself who drew them to himself. Note what Peter says here, we have already believed and have come to know. That Jesus was the Holy One of God. Faith had laid hold of who he was. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In the future, they would look back and remember him saying this, and it would guide them. A very powerful message in this chapter. Well, before I close, I'm just going to share something that happened yesterday. Uh, I had told you earlier that we had to worship in a semi-dark room. At the end of the worship, uh, the last thing we do is we partake at the Lord's table. And I got up to give thanks for the bread. And uh, this portion of scripture that we read really deals somewhat with the Lord's table in that the Lord was talking about he was being the bread of life and that eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But he did expound on the clear verse where it says that this is spiritual. It's not uh, something physical that we do. We're not cannibals. But what I shared at the end before we partook of the bread is the fact that something transpired that a lot of people might just brush over in the scripture. And I was sharing out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, and then I went back to 10. 11 is really the one where Paul says, uh, For I have received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that on uh, the night that the Lord was betrayed, that he took bread and gave thanks. Uh, and then he said that this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's really what the Lord's table is about. But if we go back to chapter 10, there's a couple verses in 10. I'll start with uh, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation uh, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Kind of interesting that in the institution of the Lord's Supper, the bread is spoken of first. But here, it is spoken of uh, last, and the blood is spoken of first. And uh, this kind of struck me as strange. But then, everything given by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God has 
a meaning. And I believe that uh, the blood has to be applied first before we can partake of the Lord's body. And the reason I say that is one hymn that we sang, and we sang it after worship uh, yesterday, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? Are, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you come to him daily for that cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You know, we need, and, and, and uh, Keith brought this out at the end of his chapter, that he at one time came to Jesus for that cleansing. Uh, he knows the time, the date. I do too. I mean, you don't need to know the date and the time, but uh, I came to know the Lord before Keith. He came in 1982. I came in 1979. I remember exactly where I was and exactly my words I said. I was trying to be saved. I wanted to be saved, but I didn't know how. And I kept trying and trying. And finally, I said to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to quit trying and I'm just going to start trusting. Simple faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou will be saved. Well, I'm going to end with that, and just remember, if you haven't put your faith and trust in the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off, because you don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. I had a crazy dream last night that I, I was in a rollover accident, you know, things like this happen. I know it was only a dream, but there are people that have accidents and they can die. You can die at any moment. Trust the Lord for your salvation. Bye for now.